Good morning, church. We are grateful that you're here, uh, whether you're joining us uh, for the first time uh, here on the Wills Point campus, or perhaps maybe uh, the same is true in Edgewood. We're grateful that you're here. Uh, today, we are continuing a series called Awe and Wonder. And just real quickly, just want to share a little bit of the awe and the wonder of God in my own life uh, as we uh, kind of jump in this morning. Uh, and real quickly, just want to encourage you that the awe and wonder in my life uh, comes from the Word of God. And so I've been uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, here lately, uh, but as I reflect about the Word of God, I can't help but just kind of write down a few things that the Word of God has done uh, for me in my own life. And as I think about the Word and the power of the Word, here's a few things that I just kind of wrote down. Uh, one is the Word of God gives us eternal life. Uh, it gives us salvation and hope. Uh, it gives us spiritual cleansing, uh, Ephesians 5.26. Uh, it gives us the power to stand against the enemy and spiritual forces in this dark world, Ephesians 6. Uh, it gives us the power to bring about healing, not only in our lives, but in the lives of other people, that we can uh, ask God to give us spiritual strength and to move us forward uh, in our lives, Psalm 119.28. Uh, the Word lights our path. It gives us wisdom, Proverbs 3. Uh, it, it helps us to not lean on our own understanding, and it strengthens our faith, Romans 10. And so the question is, is does the Word matter? And the, and the answer is absolutely. Uh, and here's the thing. When we think about the Word of God, oftentimes, I think if we're honest, we get a little bit overwhelmed by the Word. Uh, we get a little overwhelmed and and whether or not it can give us hope and, uh, and whether or not it can give us wisdom. And, and most of the time, I think we think about the Word of God and we, we look at it and we say, I just don't understand it. Well, I'm happy to be reading uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this week. And one of the interesting things about understanding the Word is that Paul writes to the church of Corinth and he goes, listen, those who are not spiritually discerned, meaning that they don't have the Spirit of God leading them in the charge of the Word. He goes, they won't understand it. They won't be able to understand the truths that are hidden. Why? Because in many ways, the Word of God is a mystery to us and a mystery to those who long to know the things about God. And so the question that you might ask yourself is, is how do I explain the Word of God? If it is something that we should be awestruck by, it is the way that God speaks to us, communicates to us, and we spoke a little bit about that last week, how do I, how do I approach the Bible and how do I begin to move forward in that? So we are going to uh, spend a little bit of time uh, here in the next month or so, and we're going to share some, uh, some great tools about how you can... Uh, study your Bible. And we're going to do that for ladies uh, beginning, um, I, I believe that's that Thursday after um, in the middle of, of uh, February. And I believe that is going to be, somebody look that up, that third date for me. Uh, it, the guys are going to start out on the 15th. Uh, then we're going to go the 22nd, 29th, and the 7th. And I'm thinking the ladies are going to be on the 20th. It's the 20th, 27th, following will end on the 12th. And so encourage you to be a part of that. But the question that you have to ask yourself is, okay, how do I approach my Bible? And so as we begin to think about our Bibles, um, here's what I want you to realize is that as, as I kind of walk this out in a way that's practical and, and way that you could understand it, here's what you need to know is that I did not learn my Bible in a school of theology. I went and took many, many seminary classes, but I want you to realize that they did not effectively teach me to understand the entire Bible. 
That, that understanding of the Bible is something that you do as you approach the Lord over and over and over throughout the Word. And so oftentimes, uh, us and our discipleship method is not near as much about a class as it is making it a priority in our own life to feed ourselves every day. Just as you would nourish your own body, you have to nourish your soul, and you do that through the Word of God. And so when I tell you today kind of what your Bible is and what it means for us, here's what I want you to hear more than anything, is that I am just one beggar telling another beggar about how to find bread. That's my role around here. And so you might call me pastor. uh, You might call me something else. I don't know. uh, But I'm just a beggar trying to tell another beggar about where to find bread. That is my goal, is to help you realize that life is found in Jesus Christ. Now, our Bible is composed of 66 different books. Uh, They were written over a period of 1,500 years. Uh, There are over 40 different authors that were uh, part of the collaboration process. Uh, The Bible was composed on three different continents and three different languages. And if you would like to learn more about that, you can go back and see last week's message online. But the question you might ask yourself is, if the Bible is such an amazing book and we should be inspired by it, we should live in all of it and the wonder of God in our life, what does the Bible actually mean? Like, what is shared there? And because when we think about the Bible, we can get a little bit overwhelmed. And here's what I want today. I want to just give you the four themes of your Bible and why it should matter to us. And the four themes are, are rarely, uh, are fairly simple, and so let me just share them to you real quickly. Uh, one of them is creation, the second is fall, third is redemption, and fourth is restoration. That's your entire Bible summed up in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, here's the thing. When we show up to church, oftentimes we go, okay, I get that, but why, why all the talk about so many other words? Because like, when I think about my Bible, I don't think about just four words, creation, fall, uh, and, and redemption, restoration. I'm like, I hear words like salvation. What does that mean? And uh, justification, and, and then sanctification. And then, and then you're talking about a millennial reign, and what does that even mean? You're talking about end times. You're talking about a rapture. I don't even know what all this stuff is. And, and here's what I want you to realize is that today, we're not going to talk about all these words that many of us don't know the meanings to. Let's just talk about what God's purpose is for our lives. And it is that we recognize the source of hope from God to us through his scriptures. And so I want you to realize that even if you don't know the Bible through and through, if you're confused by reading plans, we can understand today and the message that God has for us. And here's what your Bible says. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it simply says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1 says it this way as Paul writes to the church in Colossae in verses 15 through 17. It says, He, meaning Jesus in this particular context, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by Him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if you were to combine just Genesis 1 and Colossians 1, 15 through 17, here's what you know, is that God has always been, and he created everything that we see and know at this particular point and moment in history that's called the creation story. 
It's, it's when we see in Colossians 1 that Jesus, the Word of God, which made himself known to us, John 1, spoke everything we see and know and even the things we don't see and know into creation. Now, what's so interesting is, is we think, oh, Father God spoke all of that. But he says, no, his son was a part of creation in that narrative so that we would see his power demonstrated to us that he's not just God incarnate, the one who comes as a baby in the form of flesh, but he's always been, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he has the ability to be everywhere and to do all things. And he is the one who spoke all things into existence. Now, what's so incredible about that in the creation story is not that we just have birds of the air and fish of the sea and that we have mammals that roam along the ground or reptiles for that matter. It's not just that we have an expanse in the sky and that we have waters below. It's not about just all those things, but it really means that on day six, he created something that he said not is good, but is very good. And that was the creation of the one race that would actually be the authentication and the picture of God's goodness in creating man in God's own image. Nothing else in all the creation, all the splendor that you and I see can say and testify that we are created in the image of God. Friends, listen, I want to understand that even the angelic beings can make such a declaration. That they cannot even understand as the New Testament would tell us the means of God's goodness and grace and, and the enormous benefits that he gives to us through salvation. So God is so faithful to us. And if he created everything we see and know, and he's intimately acquainted, even with this, this human race that he says is very good, here's what you need to know. The scripture says he is absolutely acquainted with you. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's why we think about the human race and we, we say that there's dignity and that there is value and that there is equality under the sun because of God's finite uh, ability to do all of these, uh, or this, his infinite ability to do all things. Uh, that we as finite creatures cannot understand his infinite power and the measure of his goodness. And so what we see here is that he loves us, that he cares for us. Matthew chapter 10 says that he even knows the number of hair on our head, verse 30. We see that God is so good to us that he, he hasn't forgotten us, that he cares for us. And we might doubt him. We might oftentimes wonder why he has us here, why we're trudging along through life, why we've experienced so many hurts and why we've had so many difficulties, why we feel so lonely at times, why we feel so afraid at times, why we live in fear or in isolation or many times we, we live without the, the worth or the value that intrinsically we should have because God created us in his own image. And he goes, I just want you to know that I love you. Matter of fact, that's why we as believers in Christ, we celebrate and even uh, recognize a day that happens every January on the 22nd of the month that's called the Sanctity of Human Life Day. Christians all across the world in this moment, in this day, on the 19th, of January are celebrating today the sanctity of human life. It's why we believe that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there's a God in heaven who loves you and cares for you. 
And it's because he created you in his image. And I want you to realize that there's a lot of messages that can be shouted from the rooftops of churches and by pastors and their leaders and by church members. But here's the message you need to hear is there's a God who's intimately acquainted with you and he loves you. And the reason we as believers in Christ want to protect life is because God values it because he created it. And I want you to realize that even as we think about protecting life, that there's many of us that have been a part of of that journey. And some of us regret many things that we have done, even the past, of not acknowledging the very life that God has created, whether that be our own life or the value of life around us. But here's what you and I need to know. The reason we value life is because of the creative narrative in our Bible that take place in the very handful of pages that we read in the first chapter of Genesis. Now, what's so interesting about this idea of creation is that God not only values life, but the challenge with our Bible is we don't know how long God values life. Matter of fact, if you were to pick up your Bible and you were to start a reading plan in January, which some of you have done and probably are already bogged down in uh, as you've approached the middle point of Genesis, the question that you might ask yourself is, is man, how, how long did creation really... that that narrative last? Was it really a literal six days and God rested on the seventh? Well, I happen to believe that. But moreover than that, uh, before you get to chapter three, you're already reading about the fall of mankind. And as you think about the fall of mankind, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, well, how long did, did Adam and Eve actually get to spend with their creator? Like it didn't seem like very long, right? Because as Moses writes that book called Genesis, he speeds through it pretty fast. Matter of fact, we were talking about this just this week in the office. And the question you got to ask yourself was, how long did they actually enjoy time with the Lord in the garden? It feels like about three days or about you know, 96 hours, but it could have been hundreds of years. We really don't know in the narrative. What we do know is that God created them in his image, that they had value, worth, dignity, and they had a relationship with God that they could enjoy him and his presence. And then something happened. Something happened that threw a wrench in all of the plan, or did it? And that thing that happened was this angelic being that fell from heaven. And this angelic being that we would call Diabolos, the accuser, or he also is referred to as Satan, uh, is the one who torments and tempts this woman named Eve in the garden. In Genesis 3, you see the account that begins to transpire. As this account transpires, here's what we know, is that there's a woman who is... uh, very familiar with God and his purposes and a relationship. She's even familiar with the prohibition that God had given them. And that prohibition was pretty simple. Hey, there is one tree in all the things that I have established and created. There is one place in the supermarket you must not go. And you shouldn't go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But everything else here is permissible. Whatever aisle you want to go up, Whatever fruit you want to pick, you enjoy it all. But there is one place that you should avoid. And which we know is the very place that uh, the serpent would begin to deceive. And it was the soft spot in their life that he began to begin to pick at, in a sense, and began to tempt and to lure and entice them. And what's interesting, he didn't entice them with how good the fruit would be. He enticed them with the fact that God must not be as good as he claims to be. And so he began to lure them and entice them and saying, hey, listen, the reason that God is keeping you from such good things is because he doesn't want you to be like him. 
He didn't want you to have all the power he has. He didn't want you to see the eyes of, of God, that everything would be enlightened the way um, that, that he does. And, and here's the fact of that. That is true. And the reason it's true is because God did not want his creation to experience all the torment, all the pain, all the corruption that is on the other eye, uh, end of their eyes being opened. But it wasn't because God was trying to withhold his goodness from them. It was because he was trying to maintain a relationship with them and that he desired to know them and love them and be intimately acquainted with them. But they desired to do what's right in their own eyes. And when we do what's right in our own eyes, then this thing enters into the picture that's called sin. And so they chose to do what was right in their own eyes. And in the narrative of our Bible, creation wants a perfect relationship with God is now broken and it's fallen. And, and now man is being separated from God. There's a myriad of, consequence, myriad of consequences from childbirth uh, pains to uh, enmity between uh, strife, between a woman wanting to rule over her husband, uh, to being booted out of the presence of God. And now death and pain and, and, and toil and labor will all be a part of our life. And one of the, the biggest consequences was is that we will be separated from God forever. That because of our sin, we now have a punishment and a consequence that dates all the way back to the very point of creation story. That now the narrative is different. <clears throat> Matter of fact, you see uh, this picture time and time and time again uh, through words like this. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Or Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or even Romans 3.10 says, No, not one is righteous, not even one. We know that because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, that mankind now is fallen. We are separated from God. We have rebelled against Him. And we live in a state of rebellion all of our life, doing what's right in our own eyes, feeding our own appetite and our own fleshly desires. And we wrestle. We, we have this war being waged and we see it um, in, as grandparents or even as parents in our, in our kiddos. We see how they wrestle with what's right and what's wrong, what's truth and what's a lie. And we have been deceived in so many areas of our life because the enemy, the father of lies, has spoken to us as he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy who we are. Romans 5.8 says that he's like a roaring lion. He's prowling around looking for someone to devour. And that's what he's been doing all of history. He's been luring, enticing people away from what God desires for their life. And because of the fall, and because of sin in our life, we've struggled to know what to do. But then, one starry night, God fulfilled all the pro promises of the, the law and the prophets. And there was a baby born in the city of Bethlehem. One in which would be born in the city of David, that he would be the counsel, the prince of peace. He would be the mighty God. He would bring the one uh, that would bring about eternal life to those who would follow him. And God began to unleash and unfold his plan of redemption. 
If you wanted to write another word besides redemption, you could write reconciliation. What God is doing in this story is he realizes that his creation has fallen. They've been separated from him and they have been working their way tirelessly trying to get back to God. But here's what you need to know is that that God has never created systems in which you and I were meant to work to him because he was desiring to work back to us. Which hence the words I said earlier, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there's a God in heaven who loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And so he makes that possible by sending his own son, the holy, perfect one named Jesus, the one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. He would become the high priest, a familiar term in Israel. He was the one who was to stand in the gap for us. Now, if we were to see God on our own face to face, we would be consumed by an all-consuming fire. But if Jesus were to come and stand in our place, if he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he never sinned like all the creation has, that he could stand in the place between man and God, and he could be what's called the high priest, the one who reconciles sinful people to a holy God. And so Jesus comes, and he stands in the place of, for people like you and me. And it doesn't matter what you think the list is. He stands in the place for thieves and liars. He stands in the place for murderers and prostitutes, addicts and pornographers. For self-righteous and religious, he's willing to stand in the gap for them too. He's willing to stand in the gap for the fearful, the, the afraid, the prideful, the scandalous. Remember, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there's a God in heaven who loves you and he cares so much for you. And he wants a relationship with us. Matter of fact, the scriptures just candidly tell us time and time and time again that in our humanity, once we were God's prized possession, there was something that did happen in that fall that separated us from God. Matter of fact, Paul writes to the church of Colossians. He says it this way in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, and you, meaning anybody, the creation, he goes, and you were once dead in your trespasses. And the uncircumcision of flesh. But God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What he does here is he goes, listen, there's a way for you and I to be back in, in reconciliation with God, to have redemption. That even though we are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God, even though we were once dead, we can now be alive in Christ. That our trespasses, our sins, our mistakes, our failures, our past can be canceled. Can I get an amen? amen. Like that's the God in heaven that we serve. Romans 8.1, Paul writes to the church of Rome. And he goes, listen, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That being in Christ is what matters. Ephesians, Paul writes to them and he says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, he goes, but God is rich in mercy and because of the great love which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, even though we fell in the creation narrative, even though uh, we sinned, God is willing to make us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that we've been saved and he raises us up with him and he seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says this in Colossians 1, 21 through 22. This is after he talks about being the creator of all things. We see and know. Uh, he says this, And you were once alienated. You were, uh, you were hostile in mind. You did evil deeds. 
But he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the question is, what did he do? He came and he lived a perfect life. But living a perfect life wasn't enough to satisfy the legal demands for all of creation's failures. All of our sins had stacked up from day one, from Adam to Eve, all rolling downhill towards us, anyone who would come after them, to the generations that would follow. We began to invent new ways of doing evil, Romans 1 says. We found new measures and ways to create sinful patterns. And yet one day, in the narrative, this, this baby shows up. He lives a perfect life, obedient in every way, even to his parents. And then he dies on the cross. He subjects himself to torment, to ridicule, to pain. He, he, he subjects himself to being accused falsely. And yet he stretches out his arms, he sheds his blood, and he dies for us. And the reason he does so is because he wants to reaffirm this message in our hearts and our lives. That no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there's a God in heaven who loves you. And he gave his son for you. That's what the word means. It means that even though you've been tempted in your life, and matter of fact, you gave into the temptation, you were lured, you were enticed, you gave way, and you allowed sin to be birthed in your life. You have made it a habit of conceiving sin over and over and over again in your life. God says there is still a way for you. And that way is not found in you getting to the point in January where you realize, you know what, it's time for my, my, me to get myself back in church. It's not because you go, hey, you know what, it's time for me to finally do what I've, I've said I'm going to do. And hey, God, I'm ready to finally leave some of the, the lifestyle I've done because now I have kids and it's time for me to get my stuff in order. That's not what it is. It's not you finding a new, better version of yourself. It's not you reinventing you over and over again. And the reason why is because if it's up to you and it's about you improving yourself, then what you need to know is that you're subjecting yourself to a lifestyle that is tireless and endless and void because you will never measure up to the, to the demands that God requires. And he goes, you don't have to measure up because I've measured up on your behalf and his name is Jesus and he's been perfect in every way. He's never sinned. He's never fallen short of the glory of God. And if you will merely look to him high and lifted up, he would love to bring about reconciliation and redemption in your life. And here's what he does. He goes, all you have to do is come to the end of yourself, recognize and admit I'm a sinner. Believe that there's a God in heaven who can can fix you, that he's already done everything for you, then trust him. And as you trust him, you're submitting your will and your way to him. Because here's what sin is. Sin is anything that we do, say, or think that is against God. And what he's saying is, I want to change the things you do and the way you think and the things that, that you continually over and over make a habit of in your life. He goes, I want to change those about you. But I can't change those about you until you submit yourself over to the care and the correction and to the control of God. And when you finally come to the end of yourself and you realize that you're not near as good of a God as you think you are. And he goes, I would love to be your God. And I would love for you to be my people. And I would love for you to be my son. And I would love for you to be my daughter. And I would love to reconcile you, not because of anything you've done, but because of what God has done for you. He goes, I want to bring about salvation. 
And you might be here, you might be thoroughly confused about what you think salvation is. And the reason why is because in all the language of our Bibles, Old Testament, New Testament, New Covenant, Old Covenant, all these different things, you go, I don't even know what you mean by saved. And here's what you and I need to know. As Americans, we've been throwing the word salvation around all our lives. And many of us in this room think we have it and don't know even how to explain it. And I want you to realize here's what salvation is. Salvation is us having confidence that God has done everything in our life to produce in us a new life. The question I would ask you is this. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being least confident, 10 being most confident, how confident are you that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? If you say anything less than a 10, then there's a couple of things that you have to begin to ponder. One of those things you have to ponder is, why are you less than a 10? And if you go, you know what I've done, just a lot of junk in my life, then you already clearly don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there's a God in heaven who loves you. And I think when we think the gospel narrative is about what we've done, what we haven't done, and about what we should do, you've already failed on the gospel narrative. Because I want you to realize that even if you were to erase most of the bad things you've done and you've added a laundry list of good things, you still do not measure up to the goodness of God. Because the God we know and the God we celebrate is the God who's never sinned, never fallen short, never thought one bad thing, never said one bad thing, and never did one bad thing. Even in his anger, he's perfect. Even when you think about God and you go, I don't understand him, his ways are so much more lofty than our ways. That's the God we talk about. And here's what salvation is. Salvation is simply you coming to the place and you go, God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know I don't measure up. God, I know I've never measured up and I've tried. I've gone to church. I've turned over every new leaf. I've tried to read the Bible and I don't understand it. God, I've heard all my life that you have died on the cross for my sins. And the question that you have to ask yourself is not have you heard the phrase, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, because everyone in this room has heard it more times than you can count. The question that you have to ask yourself is why? And if you can't thoroughly explain the question of why Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you don't clearly understand the gospel. And I think the answer is found about why we can't enter heaven without a proper understanding, I think it's found in this question. Why can you not die on the cross for someone else's sins? Have you ever thought about that? Like, that's kind of a weird question. It's not one that you hear often asked. Like, and the reason why you couldn't die on the cross for anyone else's sins, and parents, listen, you think I wouldn't hoist myself up on the cross so that my kids could have eternal life? It's not a, would you be willing? Absolutely, I'd be willing. The question is, is am I worthy? Am I eligible? And the very thing that makes me not eligible to die on the cross is the very thing that makes me not eligible to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the reason I can't hoist myself up on the cross is not because I'm not a sinner. I deserve to be there. It's that because of my sin, I would just merely be one of the thieves on his right or left. I wouldn't be the king of kings, the one who's worthy. My blood being slain would do nothing for anyone because it is full of guilt. But the blood that was slain of Jesus had no guilt. And therefore, as Paul wrote to the church in Colossians, he said, it is his blood that canceled the record of debt that stood against us. See, the reason Jesus could go to the cross and die for sinners is because he had never sinned, which makes all of us in this room ineligible. 
And because we're ineligible, it means that we have to have one who brings about forgiveness in our life. And that forgiver, the one who restores us, the one who brings reconciliation to us, is named Jesus. And if you're here, I want you to realize that salvation is not turning over a new leaf, it's not going to church, it's not beginning to be good or doing some things that make you feel better about yourself. Here's what salvation is. Salvation is saying, Lord, I know I fall short of the glory of God. I know that on my own, I am going to ruin my life and wreck it. I am a train wreck. And as a good friend of mine that sits in this room earlier this week, he said, you know, one of the, the things about our life is when we run and wreck our life, we drive it off of the ditch. We have this tendency to overcorrect, which puts us in another ditch. And I thought, that's so fantastically good. And the reason why is because we know that we're messed up and we're always in a ditch. And what we think is, let's overcorrect. Let's, let's go and let's do more things that make it better. And here's the deal. You can't do more things to make it better with God. Here's how you have salvation with God is you die to yourself. And you say, Lord, I don't want to be in control anymore. Would you, would you be the boss of my life? Would you take ownership and would you make me your steward of grace? And would you make me your ambassador and a people after your own possession? And may you help me to love you, serve you, and give my life for you. That's salvation. Now listen, if you're here today and you'd say, I don't know if I really know the Lord. Listen, would you please do me a favor and not go home today without having a conversation about that? Like, that is the most important thing on our agenda today. It's more important than a couple of closing songs. It's more important to, than, than anything else today that we would do is just to make sure that we know that the Lord is in our life and that we confirm that if we were to die today, that we know that we would be with him forever. Listen, I'm going to make myself available. You'll find me, hunt me down. I'm going to probably be in that main lobby out in the front. Listen, Pastor Dick, uh, Archie, uh, many others are available on the Edgewood campus, as are we available here. Now, here's what you need to realize is I've only talked about three parts of the Bible narrative. I've talked about creation, fall, and redemption. But there's one more, this hope of restoration, final restoration. And you might ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Because isn't salvation restoration? Yes, salvation is restoration before God, but it's not the final restoration. And the reason why is because even though we know Christ, we can still be lured, enticed to give way to sin. Matter of fact, we still have this thing walking around with us because it's our body. It's called the flesh, which means I'm prone to still do foolishness. Things that I know I ought not to do, I find myself doing. But the Bible does tell us that one day, that there's going to be a day where everything we see and all of creation that has been broken will one day be restored. Matter of fact, Revelation 21 tells us that, verses 1 through 5. John, he gives us a picture of a revelation he sees. He goes, listen, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had then passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It was, it was like I was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, there's the dwelling place of God is with man, and he's going to dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He's going to wipe away all of their tears. The, de the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the old order of things have passed away. And then in verse 5 it says, And he who is seated on the throne, meaning Jesus, says, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Now listen, there's a lot of things about the heavens that I don't understand, and we don't have time to unpack all of that. Here's what you need to know, is that we live in a broken world, and until the the day we finally take our last breath, or until Jesus comes after us, we know that we're still going to wrestle with this thing called flesh and blood. God's not asking us to be perfect, but what he is asking us is to trust in a perfect God who created us, who loves us despite the fall, and who has sent his son for us. I was having a conversation with a gentleman just earlier. And, he, and listen, life's been difficult. And it's been hard. And here's the hope that one day what's difficult and hard and what is so broken now will one day be restored. And your pain and your sickness and your suffering and your sin affliction that will not go away, that seems like a thorn in the flesh, or that, that, that thing that you just can't get over, listen, one day God's going to make that right. But until then, he says, you need to trust me. Because where you were weak, I am strong. Where you are foolish, I am wise. Where you were frail, I am perfect. So trust in me. Why? Because there's a God in heaven who loves you. No matter what you've done or where you've been, he wants a relationship with you. And I pray that today might be the day. And you know why I share this message with you? It's because the the way that God is most mindful of us is not the fact that he gives us gardenias and bees and sunrises. The way that God is most mindful of us is that he would give his son as a means of hope and restoration and salvation. And listen, he just says, you don't have to be the God of your own life. And if you acknowledge that you've not been a very good God, he goes, I would love to be your God. And I would love to call you by name. And I would love to put you on a path of hope and and blessing and victory. And then the final question he says is, will you trust me? Will you really trust me? Father in heaven, we love you. And we ask God that you would help us to really trust trust you. And Lord, I pray that as we sit in this room, beggars in need of the bread of life, Father, I pray that we would realize that there is not one beggar that is better than another beggar. That as because of our sin problem, Lord, we all need redemption. We all need reconciliation. Lord, we all, we all long for final restoration. Lord, because we are your creation and we are valued under God, Lord, we know how distant we are because of our sin problem and that the fall created a chasm between us and you that can only be met and only be fulfilled by Jesus. Lord, would you help us to trust him today? And God, I am in awe that you would be mindful of us as men, not merely to meet our everyday needs, but God, to meet our eternal ones. Thank you, God, for meeting our eternal needs through your son, Jesus. I pray that today, Lord, at the sound of my voice, whether it be on one campus or another, I pray there would be a handful of people that today realize and recognize that they're not a good God on their own. And I pray today they would trust in the God who redeems them and wants to bring forgiveness to their life. Lord, I pray today that there would be many who would come to know you as a result of your message of the gospel. And I pray that we would be in and all of you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.